think that is a core part of my practice, the act of inviting people into spaces, into experiences that allow them to discover something new about themselves, allow them to lay down their burdens and come away with a sense of light, a sense of belonging, and hopefully a sense of joy. Hello, and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Amanda Punk Botipakia. Amanda is a neuroscientist turned artist whose ability to make intricate scientific concepts accessible through art and design earned her a TED residency as well as the opportunity to speak on two TED main stages. Her numerous works have been featured in spaces all over the world, from a highway tunnel in the Netherlands to New York's Cooper Union. They include an AR installation immersing viewers in the world of microbes and Beyond Curie, a project that harnessed both technology and design to celebrate the most badass women in STEM history. In the last couple of years, Amanda has focused her talents on engaging with and revealing often hidden parts of the human psyche, from the bigotry and racist violence that have reared their heads throughout the country, to the cumulative trauma and grief of the COVID crisis. As an artist-in-residence with the New York City Commission on Human Rights, she created a citywide mural project titled I Still Believe in Our City to counter anti-Asian violence and center the lives and experiences of Asian Americans and people of color as crucial threads in the American fabric. Soon after the shootings at Three Spas in Atlanta in 2021, Time magazine featured images from the series on its cover. Amanda spoke to me from Lincoln Center in New York City. She was in the middle of ironing out the last of a myriad logistical challenges for an installation she was setting up on the Lincoln Center Plaza and in the reflecting pool there. So I asked her to throw us into the deep end of her work, as it were, and describe this current piece. Absolutely. So the one I'm fixing today is actually one of four participatory installations that I have up at Lincoln Center right now. It's part of a series called Gather. Over the past few years, as I'm sure many of us feel, I have been asking myself, you know, as an artist, what can I give to our communities? I think artists are much like essential workers in the sense that we can people heal if we choose to. So last year, I had the opportunity to put public art up in seven different American cities and got to speak to people about their lives, you know, their struggles, their hopes, what is really challenging them right now. And I came away with this distinct feeling when I got back to New York that, you know, everyone feels just so unmoored and feels like they're just kind of adrift and disconnected and we live in such a time of uncertainty, I started asking myself, you know, what can I share as an artist? And it came down to rituals. You know, I started reflecting on rituals in my own life. I started thinking about 
the ones from my childhood, ones like Loi Kwasong, which is, you know, a festival of forgiveness and respect and renewal where we float, well, we make these lotus shaped vessels and we sort of put our burdens from the past year into the vessels and we put incense in there and we float it onto a body of water and let the water sort of take our burdens and our worries and our pain away. So I decided to create a participatory work around not exactly that ritual, but one in which the spirit of Loikotong lives. That piece is called Islands in the Sea. You know, there's that quote from William Blake, we are islands in the sea, but connected in the deep. And I feel that grief is something that connects us. And we have all grieved something over the past few years, being in this pandemic, you know, losing opportunities, losing loved ones, losing a sense of safety and security, you know, sometimes losing ourselves too. So this is an opportunity for folks to come to Lincoln Center to, to see these nine sculptures that I've created sit in the Paul Milstein reflecting pool and go through this ritual with me in which we float these vessels that I've designed that are circles of wood that have a mirror on top that I invite people to write on and people can write down what they lost. But we, we sort of go through this, this whole ritual. And, you know, I ask people to, of course, tap into their broken hearts. But by the end, we almost have broken open hearts where they're tender and they can open up to receive love and give love. Because I think it's a really powerful thing when we can gather and give our grief away to an open, loving heart and, and thereby lighten our load. So that's sort of what Islands in the Sea is all about. And, you know, there, there are all these different touch points from my Southeast Asian roots. Uh, I've created nine sculptures because in Thai, the word for nine, which is gao, is a homonym for the word for moving forward, which is gao na. You know, the, the sculptures are are not sad because I think we don't necessarily need to be reminded of our sadness. We feel it every day. You know, we feel how exhausting it is and how it sort of blooms other grief. But what we can be reminded of is that there is light that can be found in moments of grief and moments that challenge us. So has have the ritual is taking place this weekend? Uh, have you already had one? I've had a few of, of the okay. Islands in the Sea ritual, but um, my next one is actually this coming weekend, and then I'll run one the weekend after as well, and then a few more. This is just one of the four, and you know, each each installation taps into a core emotion. What was the what was your first experience of it? How was it different from what you had planned in your head? Oh, that's a wonderful question. I think with art in public space, you know, even if you don't engage audiences as deeply as I am, there's always the unexpected that happens and you come to expect that if you do enough public art. So I didn't really go in with with any sort of uh, concrete expectations other than the fact that I hoped that people would be able to 
be in the moment with me and sort of quiet the noise around us, which is always so loud, and have this moment of reflection and healing. I expected people to be able to kind of hone in on their emotions and go through the steps of the ritual with me, but I was struck by how openly vulnerable people were able to be with strangers in open public space, you know, tears running down their cheeks. You know, I'm, I'm still so moved when I talk about it because I think grief is so often something that we hide. I think as a society, we feel that it is unsightly. And I think that keeps us from healing. It keeps us from releasing the grief because we're still holding on to it because it hasn't been fully felt. And how did that feel? It, it must feel strange and wonderful and put some pressure on you to have made <laughs> something that does allow people to unload so much grief. Absolutely. I mean, I think for me, it is just a tremendous honor and privilege to be able to hold this space for folks in my community. You know, my community being New York City, any New Yorker visitor is is certainly welcome to participate. And I think that is a core part of my practice, the act of inviting people into spaces, into experiences that allow them to discover something new about themselves, allow them to lay down their burdens and come away with a sense of light, a sense of belonging, and hopefully a sense of joy. I know one of your passions is finding ways to democratize art. And one thing we love to talk about at Art Restart is reinventing systems that no longer work. So what have you discovered that institutions, whether a museum or our whole cultural department, can change to accomplish that goal, that democratizing art goal? That is an excellent question. And I think I'm still learning what the answer to that is. But as someone who cares a lot about democratizing art, I'm trying things. You know, I'm trying different strategies to figure out what works. Oh, so you know, what, what, artists... what works and what doesn't so far? <laughs> well, I would say that oftentimes artists find themselves in the position of taking on the burden of educating institutions. Mm. So I would say first that I think it's really meaningful when an institution is already trying to learn and change. And that sort of comes from leadership. If there is no will to change and no will to open up experiences and resources to broader audiences, then it's really just going to be, you know, pushing a boulder up a hill. It's going to be just, it might not work at all, despite sort of the desire of, of someone who perhaps might not be in leadership to make changes and further democratize art. So I think we really need to make sure that it's not just a champion who has no scaffolding or support that is just going to end up frustrated and burned out. So I think that's, that's sort of the environment needs to be ready. But I also think that by inviting artists to, well, not all artists, but artists who are committed to broadening whose voices belong in these very 
rarefied spaces and who is invited into these spaces and kind of lending their perspectives on it allows institutions to change slowly. It's never going to change overnight, but I think every time we work together and we work together earnestly, there's opportunity for things to change, the needle to move, and new possibilities and relationships to begin. It seems like you're moving into these more ritualistic pieces, which are more work. And I think my question is, in your artistic journey, what muscle have you most had to work on? Oh, this is so interesting. (laughs) Uh, I think it's something that I am still trying to learn, which is how to say no. Um, I think it's important because I think it's important for artists to have sustainable practices, which means not taking on too much, whether it's trauma stewardship or just projects in general, um, making space to heal ourselves before we try to bring healing to others. So I think it's something that I am still trying to learn. I'm not the best at it, but I think because as someone who craves just a sprawling kind of freedom with my art and my practice, I'm often just so excited and hungry and interested in exploring all the things. You know, as you mentioned, it's true. I am expanding what my practice includes. I wouldn't say I'm necessarily shifting, but I have come to understand that Different mediums allow us to speak in different ways and allow us to create spaces in different ways and allow us to shape conversations in different ways. I think rituals allow for more of a partnership with audiences. We do it together. You know, we participate in a transformation together with sort of more flat murals, paintings, public art campaigns. That medium is excellent for, you know, a very public defiant rebuke or just a loud declaration of belonging. You know, it in an instant, you understand what I'm saying. But, you know, with installation work, with rituals, with participatory installations, it's a deeper, longer process to understanding. But, you know, one that is just as meaningful and rich and deep, I think perhaps even deeper than what we can communicate in that instant. You know, you might look at a mural for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, and start to see the shape of a story, but it's your story that you are putting onto the art based on your lived experiences based on your biases and your traumas and um, your hopes and dreams. But with a ritual, I'm creating a frame through which we can walk together. And there is this shared journey that we have, even though it's not exactly the same, you know, you're having your unique journey and I'm having mine. But there's a time capsule of a moment that we share. And I think that's really beautiful and something that we will carry with us. How do you remain playful with your creativity? How do you make sure you continue to have fun? Oh, that's interesting. 
Or I do mean, you? Or is it, it I'm, well, I'm making I, I an assumption? Always, or is it when you're in the midst of it, is it just work? <laughs> no, I think it always comes back to the sense of freedom. You know, I think that's why I value it so much because it allows for play. It allows for exploration. You know, I think many artists, perhaps, um, you know, even more established than I am, feel this sense that, you know, they're known for doing a certain kind of work. So they must continue doing work in that vein. And for me, I very much, I guess, rail against that notion. And I hope that, you know, every young person who sees my work and looks at my practice can be reminded that you can be playful, you can explore, you can continue to grow in the ways in which you want to and have a sustainable career. When you were starting out your artistic practice, you became known as someone who was bridging science and art. And a lot of the press about you focus on your being an artist who was also a scientist. You were just now speaking of maintaining playfulness and freedom in your practice. So I wonder at a certain point, did you have to decide to really create your own identity in order to break out of any pigeonholes you were being placed into? You know, I, well, I think it's interesting because you use the phrase create your own identity. And I think, I think we're all just trying to find our paths. And I think oftentimes if we don't reclaim our own narratives, they get told for us. And I think this happens too often with media where it's the catchiest thing that gets to be the headline and not necessarily a nuanced full picture of a person, a body of work, a journey, a path. So I think for me, I'm always trying to figure out what I want to explore next. And I think I started with something that felt natural. You know, how do we bridge these worlds of science and art? How do we make things that are often invisible, visible? And when you think about science and art in that expansive way, you also start to think about the ways in which everything else that is connected to science and art plays into this relationship. So it's impossible to separate justice and equity from science, from art. You know, those themes have always been there. But I think perhaps when I started, I was afraid to use my voice in that way. You know, I grew up in a house that we just didn't talk about justice. We didn't talk about equity. We didn't talk about race. I'm the child of Thai and Indonesian immigrants, and they wanted me to have a stable life, a good, <laughs> I guess they would call American life. And I think that shaped how I was raised. But, you know, at a certain point, you have to write your own stories. And I think I have been able to at least try to help them better understand the different ways in which success manifests. I've helped, I think, redefine for them what success can look like. It doesn't have to be a scientist or a doctor or a lawyer or someone in economics or business. You know, success can be uplifting your community. Success can be having your work become a touch point for millions of people around the world. When I first invited you to be on 
Art Restart. I told you I was excited to talk about your explorer spirit, which you just mentioned, because <laughs> yes. I do see you as an adventure. And you replied, I'm so often asked to talk about only a specific part of my practice and not reflect on its diverse whole and my explorer spirit, which really surprised me. And I think it ties into what you were just saying. What is that still true? Do you think people are missing the whole picture of your practice? I think it's very hard to really understand the full picture of someone's practice. It's not just me. I think many artists struggle with this. You know, there's there's so much that people don't know about us because oftentimes it's just a moment. It's just this one body of work. It's just this one piece. It's just this moment in time where you're catching us and we are we're always growing and evolving and shifting and breaking down barriers that I think it's it's very hard to truly understand the fullness of a person um, or even a practice. I think because I'm speaking more about the expansiveness of, of, of my practice and I'm, I guess, more open with not knowing what's next, I think it allows room for people to look at my practice as expansive and sort of like, wildly playful and exploratory. Is that new for you, this feeling of being comfortable with not knowing what's next? It is. It is. And I think it comes from a place of having tried a lot of things and having collected feedback, but not yet being able to fully process. You know, I think I've created a lot of work in the past few years it's kind of been a steady stream. When I look back on how much time has passed, it almost feels like a few lifetimes have kind of been slotted in um, <laughs> to, the, to the past few years. Um, and I think it's so important for artists to have fallow periods. I read a study somewhere that was sort of historical in its nature in terms of looking at the practices of, of many artists and looking at their most significant works. And those works very often followed a period of kind of wild exploration and I guess what people might call, you know, a sort of like fallow period where you're not kind of producing a lot or exhibiting a lot, but, you know, you're discovering what it is that you are meant to create and what it is you are meant to bring to people. Um, and I think that's that's meaningful and that's powerful and being okay with giving yourself space to know yourself and to connect with others, I think is is something that's not celebrated enough. Your artist statement includes the sentence, I believe art has a responsibility to question preconceived notions and create new possibilities, which is great. I wonder... What preconceived notion of your own have you had to question in your own artistic journey? Oh, interesting. You know, I think I wasn't sure, actually, if folks would be willing to go on the journey of rituals with me. I almost thought that people would feel like they didn't have the time. And I've been really pleasantly surprised to learn that I was wrong, that people are coming to this with hearts wide open, 
that they're coming to this work almost like they're craving it. And, you know, perhaps it was sort of like that small voice of insecurity kind of sitting on my shoulder saying, you know, do you really want to take this risk? Are you sure this is going to work? So I think that that's top of mind for me in, in terms of kind of quieting that. Oh my God, I imagine knowing that, that once you open the door in your participatory art, people want to step through that, that must open even more greater floodgates of possibilities for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the greatest gift is being in a space where you can have conversations with so many people who have just experienced your work and experience their own transformation within the work. That's really special. If you'd like to learn more about Amanda and read a longer version of this interview, just head to uncsa.edu slash artrestart. And if you haven't subscribed or followed us wherever you get your podcasts, please do so that we can notify you as soon as a new episode is published. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Keenan Institute for the Arts, thank you for listening. <laughs>